edify means to enlighten, encourage, and uplift individuals, intellectually, morally, and spiritually. That's exactly what our Edify podcast guests do, as they share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Our guest today is Erica Bakiaki. Erica is a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mary. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, it's terrific. I, I'm, I'm so interested in all of your work for a multitude of reasons, but one, because you're a fellow lawyer mom, of, but you have twice as many children as I do. And what I always find so interesting about your work, Erica, is that you're a convert to the pro-life position. It's true. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in um, a home. I was baptized Catholic, but then my mom was married and divorced three times. So by the time um, I reached my 19th birthday, I'd also lost two friends to suicide. So you can say that my teenage years, my early teenage years were incredibly emo emotionally tumultuous mm -hmm. and kind of acted out in, in many ways, as you can imagine. And so um, by the time I got to college, I found myself very quickly in the women's center I was a college athlete, but really um, sort of found solidarity with the feminists on campus. I was at Middlebury College in Vermont, very, very liberal. What was your sport? Liberal school. I was a soccer player okay. at Middlebury. And, um, and of course, you know, Senator, uh, then Congressman Bernie Sanders was um, our beloved representative there in Vermont. So I was a big fan, called myself a socialist or radical feminist at that point. Um, and so it was very much, I mean, sort of obviously pro-choice. I mean, that just sort of came with the, right. the drink. That's what's with the whole package. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, what, but what's fascinating about it is, and I think really beautiful is that I had by that time um, uh, really uh, at the end of high school, because of the suicides had really found myself, I guess you could just say had fallen to my knees and found myself in 12 step meetings. Um, and so began kind of a recovery and really a um, real dependence upon God as I understood God. <laughs> and this is still as an undergrad. And this is, yeah, well, this is actually uh, before I got to college. So then when I got to college, I kind of had already started praying. I had sort of this spiritual life. I was very into, into um, kind of new age spirituality, very anti-Christian at that point. But, and so that was sort of going, um, you know, hand in glove with my feminism um, but I was praying and that's sort of the essential point, I think, is that the prayer really, I think, opened me up the prayer and the suffering really, and the, and the anxiety and all the stuff that I was sort of enduring because of the, um, a lot of the emotional devastation of my, you know, youth, um, prayer was really my stronghold. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I sort of went more deeply into that, I guess you could say. And so, Found myself down in Washington, D.C., was working on welfare reform, um, and a bunch of different things happened that kind of, again, I think really grace opened my heart and my mind enough to see things that I really believe, had I not been praying, maybe I wouldn't have been open to. So the two really important things that happened um, was that my professor down in D.C. Um, assigned lots of constitutional law, but then also... Um, uh, Marianne Glendon's work, um, especially her book, Rights Talk, and some other kind of communitarians. They weren't like fully Catholic thinkers. Right. But, so for yeah. our listeners who aren't familiar with yeah. Marianne Glendon, she is the um, a now uh, retired learned hand professor of constitutional law at Harvard. That's right. Harvard, Harvard University Law School. Right. 
So then the second thing that happened, which all of your listeners I'm sure will appreciate, was that my <laughs> my professor, um, so really I was down there, I was studying, I think that, you know, it's, you know, some people go abroad for their junior year. So I went down to DC, was very interested in politics. So I was at American University and the professor would bring in different perspectives on sort of the contentious issues of the day. So, you know, you had a pro and anti-gun rights, you had um, you know, sort of, you know, free speech questions. Well, you had abortion. And who was the pro-life speaker but the great Helen Alvarez? Mm. So Helen at that point was working for the bishops. And I have to tell you, I don't remember a single thing she said, <laughs> but she had um, sort of, you know, both a beauty and generosity and joy to her that was something I was craving in my own life. Mm. And so then the pro-choice woman came in and was, well, angry <laughs> and um, a bit irrational and was all the things I didn't want in my life. And though I agreed with the pro-choicer, it really opened me up to the pro-life view. So when you have sort of Helen's kind of persona and then Marianne Glendon's kind of the, the arguments she made in that book, Rights Talk, really entirely opened my mind mm -hmm. up to kind of the, really the pro-life way. Right. Um, and and the, the final kind of you know, leg on the stool is that because of the care that I'd received in these, in my 12-step meetings and all that, I really understood at kind of a deep, deep way that this personal connection, personal care of um, those who are suffering, and that's really, you know, the pro-life way, right. was something that was what brought healing. Mm -hmm. And it made a lot of sense to me that that would be the way forward for a woman, like not to just kind of, as Marion Glennon says, like leave her with her legal autonomy and nothing else, but really kind of join her in solidarity and be uh, be with her what you know, those those kind people in those meetings were for me. And so it began to make a lot of sense. Anyway, it opened me up. I went back to Middlebury and um, and really, you know, shifted out of women's studies and sociology and started studying political philosophy. And it was there that both in reading the ancients, Plato and Aristotle, um, but then also meeting really, you know, Catholics on campus, Christians and Catholics on campus who mm -hmm. challenged me in a lot of ways, but they lived beautiful lives. And that was really kind of, I think, enduringly significant that it was people's lives that were much more than arguments, uh, though arguments were important too for me. Um, um, and reading kind of my way in through C.S. Lewis and others, um, but people's lives and their hospitality and all that was, um, I think, really what brought me back. Mm. How did you meet your husband? Well, that's another very fascinating story. <laughs> so I ended up after Middlebury going um, to Boston College for two years to study um, theology for a master's, which is kind of funny. I just had to do sort of all of my theological training in two years. And at BC, I had some really wonderful, very orthodox professors there. Um, and while I was there, I decided sort of through prayer, I at that point was attending daily mass, um, that I wanted to give up men for Lent. Now that sounds as though I had all sorts of dates, which I did not, <laughs> but I just wanted to give up. You know, when you become Catholic. thinking about them yeah, all the time exactly. and worried if someone was going to yeah. ask you out. Yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating yeah, yeah. penance. Like, I have never become, thought of that. When you become Catholic, there's like this romantic feel, you know, like, right. oh my gosh, Catholic marriage, and I'm be Catholic motherhood. And yeah. will walk in right. And it just, is, right. Right. And yeah. my whole life will be, well, anyway, I needed to give it up because right. it was really that kind it of romanticism. Once yeah. you're single, that can consume a lot right. of your thinking. Yeah. And That's your right. prayer life. That's and, right. You know, yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. So I put my heart in the tabernacle mm. every day. And um, so right before Lent started, I um, met this lovely man who would become my husband, but I decided, no, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna flirt with him. I'm not gonna go out with him. And I told so him- So was he at Boston College as he, well? No, he was, um, he had been working for the NSA, came back up to be close to home and, and was working for IBM at that point, and then just came to a mass. So we met at a mass actually in this chapel that I prayed 
um, beautiful stone chapel there at St. Mary's at BC. And so we became friends. So I said, okay, I think it's all right if we talk on the phone, but you know, I'm not going to flirt, which I didn't. So it became friends and it was perfectly what I needed because I would have messed the whole thing up and we become romantic right away or something because of my past. So I was really able for those 40 days to um, get to know a man who is incredibly generous hearted and uh, just a good virtuous man. I don't know that I would have been attracted to him had I not, you know, had I, because of my kind of brokenness. And so I really, and, and over the course of now we've been married um, 21 years, have seven children. Um, he's really been a rock. And um, it's amazing in marriage to have someone love you despite yourself for all that time is right. sort of the image of how God loves us. And it's a real, it's a real um, beautiful solace. And, um, and it brings about a lot of healing for people, I think, sure. who had sort of broken childhoods like mine. Yeah, that's, I mean, I wish that we could take that this, just this last three minutes of the conversation and make sure that every girl who's a high school senior can hear it, mm-hmm. you know, because I think there's a lot, there's a lot of woundedness among young that's women right. today in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of your work, while it, it doesn't address that maybe directly, indirectly points to the causes of that. So h- how did you, you know, decide to write this book on Wallenstonecraft? You know, I guess you would kind of think, gosh, that's really random. Like, how did you pick this person out of all the women in feminist history yeah, right. and focus on her? Yeah, well, that has its own backstory. I mean, a lot of the work I had done before was looking at um, the way in which the abortion-backed contraceptive revolution change sexual norms, change sexual ethics um, to the detriment of women. Right. And so I done some work um, in constitutional law looking at, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's arguments, but really the entire sort of fem- all the feminist legal literature on the idea that um, abortion is necessary for women's equality. So I, you know, did a lot of sort of deep um, constitutional law work on that. And so mm-hmm. what those two things together made me realize I wanted to do was kind of go back to my you know, the background, the really rich um, work I'd done at the end of um, of uh, undergrad, but then also in graduate school and then in law school was thinking more about political theory and rights theory. So I wanted to understand how is it that you could have a woman, someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but really all of these, um, you know, these feminists of our time who could think that it was possible to say that women could have a right to end the life of her own child. Like I just it didn't make sense to me as an issue of rights. So I wanted to get behind their arguments and try to get back to what were the philosophical kind of presuppositions that, that enabled that kind of insight to happen right. or actual not insight. But, um, and so that's where I, so I said, God, I've got it. And so every, you know, pro-life or especially pro-life feminists know that, you know, the original suffragists of our country were, you know, without um, known, um, exception opposed to abortion. We kind of know that. We know the quotes. I wanted to get into their thought, like how they thought about rights, um, how they grounded rights in their own, like in Seneca Falls and their own work. And then also like who influenced them. Hmm. And so that's where I got back to the late 18th century um, British philosopher, Mary Wollstonecraft. And so in her vindication of the rights of um, woman so what what is that? Can you just explain yeah. to the listeners who might not be familiar yeah. with her at so all? Yeah, so she's yeah, and she's a really kind of controversial thinker because and she was she, English. Yeah, she's yeah. an English woman, um, and you know, self-taught philosopher. Um, and so, I mean, she there's all sorts of things to say about her, but she um, part of why I mean, I think she, there's not a lot of attention to her is because she she sort of fell from grace, you could say, because of some things that happened in her own life. So she's a she's a figure that's a complicated figure, and mm-hmm. so I think a lot of um, conservatives maybe haven't wanted to touch her for that reason. But I think if you go and read A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, you find in there 
an approach to rights that is grounded in natural law. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, even reading through the book, what you find is that there's very little talk about rights and there's all sorts of talk about virtue. Mm. And so what she is actually saying is that rights are necessary for us to virtuously carry out our duties. And so really duties and responsibilities are the first reality of human beings. You know, our duties um, to self, to, you know, to... Um, to others. To, 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 well, yeah, right. But to self, and I, this is an important point because what she says is that we have to live according to the highest principle in us, which is our reason, right? Because we're created as rational creatures and both men and women are rational creatures. And so that what reason does is it allows us to order our appetites. And it's a very ancient view. And so we have to make sure that we're doing that. And that's part of our responsibility to ourself and to develop our capacities, our rational capacities, so that passions don't overtake us. Because that would be like to live as animals. Right. And that's really where she sees one of the things she really talks a lot about is the want of male chastity or the lack of male chastity. That chastity was a virtue only expected of women, not expected of men. And yet both men and women should care, should really fulfill all of the virtues, should be called all of the virtues to be fully human. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really, um, I think, beautiful text and a helpful way for us to kind of reclaim a rights tradition that is built upon our ends as human beings, which is to um, live virtuous lives, to um, try to grow in wisdom. And those were her goals right. as well. So that's where I think, especially for a very secular world, that yeah. sometimes we can't go, you know, with our Catholic social teaching beating Pope over the head, it doesn't right. work so well. But to use these philosophical arguments, I think is incredibly helpful. Where did women yes. read this? Yeah. So Vindication of the Rights of Women. Um, so again, 1792, and it made its way over to the United States. And so it was very influential. Actually, Abigail Adams calls herself Wollstonecraft's pupil. Uh, Abigail and John Adams actually were in the same congregation as Mary Wollstonecraft back in England when Religious John, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Unitarians, when Unitarians yeah, actually meant something. Well, yeah. Um, and that's its big long story that we don't have time for, but that you can read about in the book. And then she was very influential over Lucretia Mott, who read her book in 1820. Lucretia Mott was really um, one of the leading abolitionist thinkers, but then also an advocate for women's rights, but also had this real so strong sense that if women understood themselves um, as capable of great virtue, like, you know, and had the right to then live out, and whether it's in the professions or um, in public life, like this would this would have a great impact on, on the country, right? So reproductive justice, obviously we're hearing a lot of that lately um, because of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe and Casey. How would you describe what the church would see as true reproductive justice? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a great framing too. I mean, the way we think about it is both kind of prenatal and reproductive justice. I mean, we really, <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna say it, but the church and sort of a more ancient tradition really knows a lot more of what the word justice means than what we today sort of hear justice bantied about, right? So justice is asking what we owe one another. And so when you think about it in a reproductive terms, you think, well, what is it that we owe one another when it comes to the human being in the womb? Well, we owe that that human being, well, protection, right? The protection of its life. But then what do what is you know so that's what the mother owes that human being her child in her womb growing in her womb developing in her womb but then the father i mean the father sort of left out a lot of times but clearly the father um owes the mother something and owes the child something so what is that something that is owed right you know and then also society at large i think also owes that you know that triad which obviously sometimes when the father abandons um abandons the two then it's owing that child and its, and its mother um, something too. And so the question is like, 
what is it that's owed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what we as Catholics think is like radical solidarity, right? It's care, it's nurture, it's seeing that it is hard to be a woman who, um, in any pregnancy, any pregnancy is hard, um, but um, that, that that woman, when she is pregnant, um, becomes more vulnerable when she's taking care of that vulnerable child. She becomes more dependent. And so there are others who have to step in and then care for her life, care for her, especially if she has some sort of life-threatening or health-threatening or any type of um, condition or is poor or is, I mean, all of these things, like we as a community, as a church community, and I think as a political community, owe it to owe it to all of them to um, ensure that they have what they need to carry out their duties, right? So if we believe that the mother has a duty to care, to care for her child, well, how do we help her carry out her duties? And that to me is what a really just politics, a just economy looks like is helping people carry out their duties. Right. Well, so here's the, the other big, I, I guess, sort of philosophical term that's, that um, is, is we're finding really the, 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 almost the primary one that the pro-choice movement is, um, is imposing on us, forced birthers, as they call us, is this understanding of autonomy. Mm. So how does autonomy, as you know, as they understand it, as the, those who support legal abortion, uh, you know, how does that undermine, um, how does that actually undermine their own argument that when they talk about the woman as being a completely autonomous? And how does yeah. that play? How do right. we, how do we flip the tables on them to show them how autonomy actually harms women rather yeah. than helping them. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because obviously we all want some um, measure of autonomy, right? We all believe that we have agency, we have, we are, we govern our lives, right? Um, as the protagonists in our life. We also uh, don't want anyone coming and harming us or touching us without our consent. So there is some measure of autonomy, but if you look etym etymologically, what does autonomy mean? But it's a rule on, you know, of oneself. So it's like this idea that we sort of, um, can, uh, you know, we're the only ones who decide ultimately what our life is all about. And so it's entirely detached from sort of a greater meaning or greater purpose or something that we are a part of, right? Um, and and the, the real problem, I think, is this idea that, you know, when you think about just being autonomous, either entirely ruling yourself or, you know, there's this idea of kind of we're alone on an island <laughs> all by ourself. And, um, and what it brings to mind philosophically, and this maybe gets too much into the weeds, is really not someone like a Mary Wollstonecraft who really understood human beings as very fundamentally interconnected. But it gets instead of the, to these like the Enlightenment thinker myths of origin of, you know, Thomas Hobbes or John Locke and those who really see um, the human being as a solitary being first and foremost. And so when you think about a women's rights movement that follows in this a tradition of autonomy, it's really kind of mimicking this, this alone being all by himself. And I want to put the emphasis on himself because the idea is what's um, emphasized is a really male-bodied, because a male-bodied person, a man, can kind of pretend he's autonomous. He can engage in the same sexual act as a woman, and he can walk away physically from that and pretend that there are no consequences to mm -hmm. that act. Right. But when a woman has that engages in that same sexual act, in order to be autonomous, she has to engage in a life-destroying act. And so it is like imitating the worst sort of man the man who is literally abandoning um, his child um, to think that, and that that's how women attain equality. So it's really mu very much, and you see this in the dissent in Dobbs, that equality is attained through 
autonomy. And what is autonomy but the imitation of kind of this child abandoning man. So it's really kind of <laughs> the lowest possible um, idea of equality when... Why, know, would, why would women want that? Exactly. It sounds horrible. So, so, yeah. so there's another way of thinking about equality, right? So you can bring everyone down to this sort of awful man, or you can say, why doesn't everyone, and this is how Wollstonecraft or certainly the first women's rights advocates in our country would have said, why don't we invite men to join women in um, the, you know, the act of nurture and care and reciprocity and responsibility to that child. Right. And of course, marriage is the, as the most obvious thing. Right. And so that's where equality in terms of equality of solidarity or equality of care and all of that. And just that we're equal, obviously, um, uh, by nature as, as um, children of God, um, that we don't have to sort of prove ourselves out there in the world, but that we are, that we're equally loved and equally dependent upon God. Right. You have seven children. How do you balance all the responsibilities of work and home and do the very important work that you're doing? Yeah, it's sort of always the question for me. Well, <laughs> I think for so many women, bit, right, right? It's the absolutely. one thing we all either yeah. feel guilty about or we struggle with. Right. And, you know, there's... So, yeah, yeah, what, yeah what's yeah. your take on that? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is that there's this historical problem where we all, right now, we all think of this as like each individual woman or even man's problem. And I would actually just send listeners to an article I wrote that is kind of from the book. So if you're not going to go read the 400 page book, but it's called um, Pursuing the Reunification of Home and Work, because this is a post-industrial problem. So think about, just to give a bit of a history, which all of us know, but you think about, you know, pre-industrial um, economies were household-based. And so men and women work together in the household, obviously men far more outside of the household and women inside the household, um, but they were both doing the work of caring for children together. Mm -hmm. um, and then industrialization pulls men out of the home and they become wage earners and dependent upon you know, the, the capitalist industrialist. And then women suddenly become really dependent on the wage earning men when all of them before that had been very interdependent. And so we're in this kind of place where we have um, this very kind of post-industrial way of thinking about work that I think COVID has kind of um, helped us to kind of um, maybe reassess the way we do work in home. So the way, it's funny, I think of the way my children talk about when they've when they've like done you know reports on how does my mom think about home and work and how does she all do this? I think the insight that my oldest, my eldest saw was that I really see all the work I do as just sort of, um, kind of all of a piece. Like I see my work at home as just as much work as I see my work outside of the home. And so the question is what takes priority at this moment, mm. right? And so it's not as though, oh, I um, got to get all that work at home done in order to do this really important work I do outside the home. No, it's really, it's all fodder for um, really, well, my own sanctification, but then the sanctification of others as well. And so how is it that I could be an instrument? And so God has first and foremost given me a vocation to marriage and a vocation to care for these children. And so that always has to be my priority. But then how is it that I can use my time well in order to um, in order to serve others outside in the world? And so I have to be very disciplined and I um, have to um, ensure that I don't say yes to every possible thing. <laughs> and I have to also really see where I can push. You know, when people ask me, especially say for media appearances, I'm not as good at media. Mary, in fact, is much better at media. So I try to push things off to other people so that I can really focus on scholarship because that's where I tend that's to have more gifts. Right. And so it's just, right, right, right. we don't want to be all things to all people. We really want to see where is God calling me specifically to. And mm -hmm. so that's how I've tried to respond. 
Well, as, as we're wrapping up here, I, I'd like to ask um, if you can talk a little bit about your prayer life. Do you have any particular uh, female saints you really like who you turn to for inspiration and intercession? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the, I, I would have to say, I mean, my, my really important things that I do for prayer, try to get to mass every day, try to pray the rosary every day, try to have a time of mental prayer every day. And as someone who was very strongly feminist and then came back to the church, Our Lady has been a, kind of a, a thing that I've, um, and because I don't have a great relationship with my mother, frankly, but mm -hmm. there's been a way in which Mary has drawn um, me to her in more recent years. Interesting. And so even though I've been praying the rosary every day for like, you know, two decades now, right. there's a way that, um, and I'll tell you, it's been, especially with regard to this book, because I was very confident doing the scholarship and writing the book, not as confident doing the media. And I just really said, you know, and promoting the book, because it's not just doesn't come as naturally to me and so I said, Mary, take this. And it's been this unfolding of like seeing the care she has for me in this way. Right. So I really, I think, drawn more closely to Mary um, in the last couple of years and really um, very much um, kind of admire her fiat and the, and the kind of docility, I think, is something that I really try to try to, you know, carry out as much as I can in my own life. See, that really surprises me. Not that I ever thought you didn't love Our Lady, but I was thought you were going to say Edith Stein or, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the great, like, <laughs> scholar philosophers or Catherine of Siena or something. So um, that's that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I think for a lot of people would be, you know, a different way to think about Our Lady and how she might intercede and help help us. So, well, Erica Bakiaki, thank you so much for edifying us so that we can in turn edify America. And listeners, again, if you'd like to read Erica's book, it's The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Where uh, where would you rather that people purchase the book? <laughs> well, if you go to no Notre Dame Press, Notre that's Dame always Press, good. Right. But of course, if you go to Amazon, leave a review. That's right. always good. Yes, please do. Well, Erica, thank you. So uh, you know, your time is very valuable, and thank you for sharing it so much, uh, so much of it with our listeners today. Thank you, Mary, for having me. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.